Hey everybody, we're about to bring you the 16th free episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society of Cultural Anthropology. As those of you who visit our website on a regular basis already know, the podcast is not the only free thing the SCA puts out. We also bring you amazing web content like our hotspot series on recent events, our screening room where you can preview ethnographic films, and all of the various anthropological content that's posted in the field site section. And as you may remember from episode 8, since the beginning of last year, our flagship journal, Cultural Anthropology, has also gone open access and is now free for all to read. Producing all of this free content, however, still takes a lot of time and money. So before we get started, I'm asking you to please consider taking a moment of your time to head over to cullanth.org and support us in one of two ways. If you're already a member of the American Anthropological Association, please consider joining the Society of Cultural Anthropology. It's only $15 for graduate students, and it's enormously helpful to us when you do. And if you're already a member of the SCA, or if you don't also want to become a member of the AAAs, then you can now make a donation in any amount to directly support the work of the SCA. Details are on our website, cullanth.org. We thank you for continuing to support us in any way that you can. Now for the episode. Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Jonah Rubin. And I'm Bascom Guffin. Back in December, the Society for Cultural Anthropology was in Washington, D.C. for the annual meeting of the American Anthropological Association. Every year at the meeting, the SCA does a keynote panel we call Culture at Large. The idea behind Culture at Large is to connect anthropologists to a prominent scholar from outside our discipline who we feel should be read more by people doing ethnography. This year, the SCA invited Dorothy E. Roberts, George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology, and the Raymond Pace and Sadie Tanner Massell Alexander Professor of Civil Rights at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's also the 14th Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor. Dorothy Roberts is best known for her work on race, gender, and law, which are all themes that she explored in her keynote talk, The Future of Race and Science, Regression or Revolution. I was in the room and it was a challenging and timely talk which raises important issues for anthropologists and non-anthros alike, and we couldn't resist bringing it to you in full. Since I couldn't be there this year, I'm really excited to see what I missed. Great. Let's take a listen. So I'm going to talk about the future of race and science, regression or revolution, and I thought what I could add to discussions that are obviously going on in anthropology about this is a political framework for understanding the significance of what I see as a trend toward more interest in biological concepts of race, especially in genomic science and biotechnologies. So we all know that when the mapping of the human genome was revealed, everybody said, oh, it shows that race is not written in our genes. Uh, Clinton made a point of saying it, Craig Venter made a point of saying it, uh, and Francis Collins made a point of saying, and it was almost as if 
one of the missions of the Human Genome Project was to see whether or not race could be found written in the human genome. And all three of the, the two major scientists in Clinton emphasized that it wasn't. And for many of us, I think we thought, ah, finally, this is the moment where genomic scientists, evolutionary biologists, anthropologists, historians, law professors, you know, everybody is going to turn their attention to thinking creatively about another way of imagining and studying human beings without being saddled to these archaic racial categories that you know, came out of European typologists' effort to categorize human beings to support slavery, colonialism, and conquest. And so it was, uh, it was a hopeful revelation. But no sooner had Clinton declared that than I started to see in newspapers, in public talks, uh, in journal articles, not focusing on how do we do away with racial categorizations in scientific research, but just the opposite, with Nicholas Wade declaring that the next frontier was going to be precisely confronting the genetic differences between human races. And of course, we all know that Nicholas Wade has now taken what he had been writing about in the New York Times for more than a decade, as I just showed you, that was a 2001, right, article. I believe it may have been on the front page of the New York Times. Many of his articles were on the front page of the New York Times. He's now put it all together in a book where he claims that genetic, new genetic knowledge coming from the Human Genome Project confirms the genetic basis of race. And not only that, it explains all of human history. It explains why people of different races have different genetic advantages. Now, one is not superior to the other, he says. Oh no, that would make me a racist if I said that. It's just that white people are more genetically advantaged uh, than black people, especially, who are still tribal in their nature because blacks evolved that way to be tribal and therefore uh, tend to be more violent and sexually promiscuous and have difficulty with democratic institutions. That's what he says. Uh, I think it's interesting though that you know there's a lot of uproar about his book, but he had been writing this in the New York Times for a decade. And uh, I looked and looked for some kind of really strong contestation of what he was saying at the New York Times, and it, it was never published in the New York Times. So in large part because of Wade's articles that I've been reading for a decade, and because of other instances where I saw that this idea, uh, this evolutionary theory of separate races was gaining traction, published in newspapers, but also in talks. So what 
What really spurred me to write a book about this was when there was uh, the Silverstein Lectures at Northwestern Medical School that invite a renowned scholar to talk about, usually something about genetics. And they invited Charles Rotimi, who uh, at the time was a geneticist at Howard University, he's now at the NIH, who spoke about why there were no genetically determined races in the human species. But instead of just letting him give the lecture, they invited John Entine, this conservative commentator who wrote a book called, I'll have a slide of it later, Taboo, about why black people are good at sports and everyone's afraid to talk about it, and to give a counter at this distinguished lecture that the medical school sponsored. And I said, man, something weird is going on here, that uh, even at Northwestern Medical School, it's now so contested that race isn't a genetic category that they would invite someone like Entine to give a counterpoint to Rotimi's talk. So in Fatal Invention, I argue that we're witnessing a new biopolitics of race, where a new racial science is defining race as a genetic grouping. And I say a new racial science, I think it has many of the components of the old racial science, but it's been refurbished and upgraded with genetic information and new types of you know, computer technologies and fancier algorithms. Uh, and then, in addition to that, there is an expansion of biotechnologies and pharmaceuticals developing race-specific products that incorporate the assumption that race is a genetic category. And those impress upon the public, I think, the idea that there's something to this racial science because it can produce these products that are useful to people and, very importantly, that improve people's health. So it gives the racial science a beneficial advantage that makes it seem helpful to people, uh, very different than from the use of racial science during the eugenics era, for example, that's been discredited, rejected, but the new racial science, unlike the old that harmed people, especially non-white people, this new racial science benefits minorities because it helps to improve their health. Now, an important component of my argument is that we have to take into account the political context in which this science is being developed, and that is a period where racial inequality is intensifying uh, at every measure, income, health, education, incarceration. And you know, we know this painfully now, given 
the rash of police killings that have been going on just in the last month. Just one aspect of a much deeper set of inequalities along racial lines in this country. And this inequality and state violence are persisting at the very moment where many people are declaring we live in a post-racial society. So there's an extreme contradiction. How can this be a post-racial society when we see now the statistics and the extinguished lives of black people right before our eyes. It's, there has to be some explanation for it and for many people a comforting explanation is that these inequalities result from innate genetic differences. You're listening to Dorothy Roberts' keynote address from December's AAAs on Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We now rejoin Professor Roberts' keynote talk. So let me uh, just quickly show some examples of what I'm calling the new racial science. One component of it is a specifically, explicitly genetic definition of race. Uh, this is very common. I took it from an article in Pharmacogenomics Journal uh, from 2010, but race, races are population clusters based on genetic differences due to evolutionary pressure. This is basically Nicholas Wade's definition of race. Again, I just find it so fascinating that people are outraged at Nicholas Wade's book when what he says in his book has been, is being published in scientific journals. It's also outrageous that Wade says, oh, nobody but me will say what race really is when it's being published in scientific journals. But he's trying to make his book seem really important and exciting and novel, but it isn't at all. <laughs> so just that this is how Wade describes race and the evolution of different races ever since the first modern humans dispersed from the ancestral homeland in Northeast Africa some 50,000 years ago, the populations on each continent have evolved largely independently. I mean, this is just so nonsensical right there. He says ever since, implying that it's still going on. The idea that populations on each continent are evolving independently is ludicrous, but anyway. That's why it's so hard to get past even the first few pages of his book because it's so nonsensical. But at any rate, uh, and each race then, you know, these populations on each continent evolved to be separate races as, as they adapted to their own regional environment. Now this idea we see uh, commonly in discussions about human evolution in the popular press. So just uh, in October, in a BBC article about the genetic examination of 45,000-year-old human skeleton, the journalist wrote that the skeleton was genetically midway between Europeans and Asians, indicating he lived close to the, the time before our species separated into different racial groups. Okay, that's the BBC World News in October, stating, again, Nicholas Wade's view of how the separate races evolved. 
and also what the separate races are. You know, Wade says there's three main separate races, Europeans, well, he says Caucasians, sorry, Caucasians, which include, by interestingly, people from the Indian subcontinent, from Northern Africa and the Middle East, which is also strange that he would say that this evolutionary theory maps onto everyday views of race. I don't think most Americans would think of people from the Indian subcontinent as white, but it matches his, his theories. Uh, and then East Asians are the third main uh, major race, racial group. Now, uh, this idea of recent evolution among the races and, and the separate evolutions among the races uh, creeps into research that is supposed to explain health disparities. So another one of Wade's articles reported on research that claimed that there was evidence that African Americans adapted differently than Africans and apparently also than anybody else living in the New World uh, after they were brought as slaves to North America. And that explains why Africans, uh, African Americans and not Africans have certain disease-causing variant genes, which explains the higher rates of certain cancers and cardiovascular disease among African Americans, according to this article, scientific article, but also this is Wade's paraphrasing of it. Uh, by the way, this um, got a full half page of the Science Times, including this picture of the black slaves evolving separately. No explanation why they evolved differently than the white slaveholders who were also in the same environment, which again contradicts the idea that this is because of adaptation to unique environments. They were in the same environment. But no, no need to explain these contradictions as long as they support common perceptions about racial difference. Uh, this idea also is expressed in various biomedical uh, research studies trying to look for a genetic explanation for health disparities between blacks and whites. So as an example, this uh, study published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, was trying to find a genetic cause for, uh, basically for uh, the gaps in infant mortality between blacks and whites, but looking specifically at the risk of extreme preterm birth and its frequency of recurrence. But note the hypothesis that black race, independent of other factors, increases this risk. The, the idea that there is some genetic essence that, uh, of black people that you could separate from social factors that explains health inequities. And that study also got a headline in the New York Times. 
study points to genetics and disparities in preterm births. Okay, so uh, in addition to this idea of genetically distinguishable races affecting research on uh, genomic research and biomedical research, there is a move toward race-specific products, including race-specific medicine, based on that the, the, now the, the products themselves aren't necessarily based on any genetic research at all, but the theory supporting them is that there are gen important genetic and important and identifiable genetic distinctions between people of different races. So Bidel, a therapy for heart failure, was approved as a race-specific medicine for African-American patients by the Food and Drug Administration in 2005. This drug is a combination of two generic drugs. The research supporting it had nothing to do with genetics. The man who put the two generics together in a pill and patented it was a cardiologist. He didn't do any genetic research at all. And his theory for why the drug worked had nothing to do with race. It's just that it dilates the blood vessels and eases the pumping of people's hearts, uh, you know, who are suffering from uh, heart failure. But uh, some of you may know the story. I don't have time to go into it, but for commercial reasons, so he could get a second patent, he added the claim that it was for African-American patients. But never mind that there was no evidence of genetic difference supporting this. The chair of the Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee, in explaining why the committee recommended that it be a marketed for African Americans, asserts a genetic explanation that the committee was using self-identified race as a surrogate for genetic markers. And then the FDA, in its press release explaining why this was such an important development, the first race-specific drug that it approved, says it's a step toward the promise of personalized medicine. Now, personalized medicine is medicine that is prescribed according to the patient's individual genotype. So again, this suggests that the FDA had some knowledge about genetic differences between the races that supported its approval of this drug for African-Americans. That's absolutely false. I think that this press release statement, the press release, is hoodwinking the American public. I mean, it's really outrageous that they would make a, a statement like this, a federal agency, in promoting what I think is the unjustified approval of a race-specific drug. Uh, law professor Jonathan Kahn at Hamline University has done a lot of work showing how commercial factors influence this research and marketing and the legal benefits that manufacturers get from making drugs race-specific. Uh, and he argues that the it's, this is about the strategic use of race as a genetic category to obtain patent protection and drug approval.
Another race-specific product that's being marketed, or set of products being marketed, are uh, online ancestry testing services that tell customers either what race they are, what percentage of races they are, that's one type, and another type claims to be able to trace customers' ancestry to particular tribes, African tribes, Jewish tribes, Native American tribes. And uh, there's several articles that have questioned the science behind the claims made by these companies, which you can find if you haven't read them already. But I want to highlight also how these claims about ancestry tracing affect the way in which we think about group membership and uh, political and cultural ethnic identity. Uh, Kim Talbear, anthropologist at University of Texas, uh, who has a book out on, on this, uh, was Native DNA, I think, right? Um, has argued that when tribes use DNA as a test for tribal membership and enrollment, uh, it threatens attacking the very historical and political foundation upon which contemporary tribal governance and land rights are based. And I think it's important to question what relying on DNA means for the politics of identity, of racial and ethnic tribal identity. You're listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. For more on the SEA, visit callanth.org. Today, we're listening to Dorothy Roberts' keynote address from last year's annual anthropology meeting. Okay, so segueing into politics. Now I want to turn to, those are some of the technology, some of the science, I want to turn to the political context for these developments in science and biotechnology. First, conservative politics. I think it's no surprise that many conservatives have championed the evolutionary theory of separate races. Charles Murray, co-author of um, The Bell Curve, wrote a glowing review of uh, uh, Troublesome Inheritance. But I, I want to point you to how he tied Wade's argument to racial politics in America. So he says in his review that there have been three fronts uh, of uh, the the struggle with race, <laughs> he doesn't say the struggle for racial equality, but the struggle with race in America. First, the legal battle that ended with the civil rights movement. Second, private prejudices, which we don't really have to worry about because people who express them are quickly punished for their statements. And the third front is not violations of civil rights or expressions of prejudice, which he doesn't think are important. The, what's really important, the battle now, is the battle over the idea that biological differences among human populations are a legitimate 
subject of scholarly study. So he understands, actually, you know, he understands better than a lot of people, I think, that this is a political question and that the debate about whether or not scientists should be studying genetic differences between races is the next step following from the civil rights movement. You know, in his view, we don't have, the civil rights movement is over. And the next step is getting to what's really important, biological differences between human races. Uh, he is in line with, his ideas are in line with the colorblind ideology that the US, majority of justices on the US Supreme Court have promoted that we should not take account of race in social policy. And a number of conservative commentators then put these ideas together, which is that social race is what's constructed and it's not important to policy. We shouldn't pay attention to that. Partly, conservatives say, because there's no more racism in America. And so what is important is biological race. They're not arguing to do away with race. They're arguing to do away with race as an important factor in investigating and dealing with racism. But they're in support of studying biological race as an explanation for continuing gaps in welfare. Uh, John Entine, who I mentioned before, invited by uh, Northwestern Medical School to give the counter to Charles Rotimi, uh, he makes a similar point that diversity is a joke, basically, is what he's saying. You know, efforts at diversity, affirmative action efforts, those don't matter. What matters is what's real about race at the biological level, and that's what determines success in sports and success in the classroom. And I'll leave you to guess who he says is good at sports and who's good at the in the classroom. Yeah, the, the, he's good in the classroom, and that athlete is good at sports on the cover of his book. Uh, but it's not just conservatives who are making this argument. There is also a liberal approach to racial science that says, let the scientist, let's trust the scientists to do this research. And I think part of this comes out of the rejection of the Bush administration's anti-science approach to abortion, for example, and stem cell research and evolution, uh, and uh, the sense that the Obama administration was bringing in a new approach that valued science. And I think it's, I think it's taboo among many liberals to criticize scientists. Uh, and so the, the argument is, let the scientists do this racial research, but just worry about racists like Nicholas Wade. So Esteban Burchard, I don't know if you can see the title of his talk. It's The Importance of Race, Ethnicity, and Genetics in Biomedical Research and Clinical Practice. That's his talk. And this quote is a quote he said to me when I interviewed him for my book. We shouldn't worry about the racists 
uh, like David Duke, KKK, grand, former Grand Wizard, who uses his work, uh, we just, uh, we shouldn't fear them. We should just go ahead and do the good science and leave it from the bad racists. Uh, similarly, in the letter to the New York Times editor um, of uh, 150 or so genomic scientists, evolutionary biologists, who uh, criticized Nicholas Wade's book, they say we reject Wade's implication that our findings substantiate his guesswork. They don't say nothing we've said or, or, or uh, our, our research doesn't support his view of race. What they reject is the way that he uses his research to then have what many people say is a racist conclusion about the genetic abilities of people of different races. Okay, I'm going to move on because I don't have that much more time, but um, another liberal approach is don't worry about racial science because we live in a liberal democracy where biopolitics of identity is different from eugenics because it's characterized by choice, enterprise, self-actualization, and prudence. This is uh, Nicholas, Wade is uh, Nicholas Rowe, sorry, talking about biocitizenship generally, but this also refers to how he thinks about the research on race. It's not worrisome because of the political context in which it's taking place, which is different from eugenics, ignoring that the political context we're in is one of neoliberal privatization, a brutal punitive governance, and support of corporate interests. And we are not beyond eugenics. Uh, this statement by the doctor who approved uh, sterilizations in, of incarcerated women in the California pr prison system justified by how much money it was saving the state of California. Uh, is just one of many examples I could give you of eugenicist thinking that continues to influence social policy. Okay, I know I'm out of time, I'm gonna run through this. Uh, in, now these debates about the significance of racial science are moving into academia in the form, uh, being pitched as a disciplinary battle between the life scientists, especially geneticists, genomic researchers, and uh, social scientists. Uh, Wade says that this information coming out of the Human Genome Project about race undercuts social scientists' view of the world. Uh, studies that are using genetic research to explain social behavior often frame it as we're giving you now the real uh, explanation of social behavior, like this article um, by Kevin Beaver, who does work on the MAOA uh, gene, linking it to violence. He starts out, while gangs typically have been regarded as a sociological phenomenon, you know, we are showing that gang banging behavior actually is associated with genes. And by the way, the way in which these uh, articles are then, or this research is then 
taken up by the press often is very racialized, like this AP report, gangbanging may be genetic, uh, with a picture of uh, what looked like Latino gang members surrounded by uh, very militarized uh, guards. And arguments by social scientists that we should uh, use this genetic research in, uh, in our explanations of social phenomena and that doesn't have to diminish the social character of their context. Note that both the conservative and, uh, and, and liberal and this way of, of incorporating genetic definitions of race into social science research sends a message that racial differences are real at the molecular level, but merely constructed in society. And also, the equation that genetic race is scientific truth, anti-racism is just ideology. And you know, scientific truth has to win over ideology. Okay, how can we reverse this paradigm? One uh, way is the literature and research and thinking of race as, uh, of, of racism as affecting biology. So the way in which race is embodied uh, is an alternative way of thinking of the relationship. It's not that races are natural categories that then produce health disparities, but that these health disparities are the biological consequences of the political category of race. And Lance Gravely, Chris Kozawa are two anthropologists that have been doing important work in this area. And finally, uh, I would say that we need to work in an interdisciplinary way with genetic scientists, genomic scientists, uh, evolutionary biologists, and others in the biological sciences. Uh, I, by we, I mean social scientists, but people in the humanities as well, and confront head on the racial politics of racial science. Stop saying, the science is separate from the politics. Uh, imagine, really work on imagining another way of studying and thinking about human beings that uh, appreciates our genetic unity and diversity apart from race. I just find there's so little imagination. People seem so, we, can't, we just cannot understand human beings without race. I get that reaction a lot. Uh, but there's not a lot, I find, of creative willingness to think about another way of understanding human beings. And then a willingness to put social justice at the center. And again, end this false dichotomy between people who care about social justice and people who care about science. So I will end there, and I'm really anxious and excited to hear the comments. Thank you.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. We'd like to say a special thank you to Professor Dorothy Roberts for allowing us to reproduce her talk, as well as to Deborah Thomas and Jessica Catalino for working to organize the address. If you'd like to find out more about Professor Roberts' work, including links to her scholarship, website, and her amazing Twitter account, you can visit the show notes at cullanth.org. There, you can also find links to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you're already a subscriber, please take a minute to rate and review us. It's incredibly helpful to us in getting the word out when you do. While you're on colanth.org, you can check out a report from a workshop the SCA hosted with Hugh Raffles on human-animal-non-human relations. It's a great way to continue thinking about some of the issues we raised in our last episode with Nesargi Dave, as well as way back in our fifth episode with John Hartigan. Also on our website, you can read a new collection of short essays on protest and polarization in Venezuela after Chavez. If you're interested in some deeper insights into the issues facing Venezuela after the death of Hugo Chavez, it's a great place to start. And as always, if you'd like to be the first person to know about new podcast episodes and all the other great content that gets put out on Colanth.org, then follow us on Twitter, where we are at Colanth, and like us on Facebook, where we're Cultural Anthropology. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another exciting look into the world of anthropology on Anthropod. Mm-hmm.